0: The sermon text this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm sure that you have people in your life that you look to, that you uh, admire, maybe uh, look at their lives and you think they kind of inspire you and encourage you. Uh, You have people that kind of motivate you, you know, when you think about the Christian life, it, it has many bumps and uh, it feels like hindrances to overcome, and, and it, it's, it's difficult. And so we need people. I need you. Uh, so many of you have walked through difficulties well, and you've done it strongly. It's encouraged my faith. It's encouraged me to walk well. I've seen some of you handle success well. It's instructed me. So so the saints of today are very, very helpful for us walking and finishing well in this life. But there's also the saints of yesterday, those saints that have died, those saints that have lived lives that really have kind of inspired us, encouraged us. You know, Since uh, 2004, I've been doing one biographical sermon per year. You don't have to take notes. If you want these notes, if they're anything to you, just ask me, I'll give them to you. Uh, but just sit back and, and you know, I, I, every year I've tried to take one person that has revealed the greatness of the glory of God, both in their strengths and weaknesses, and put them before you and say, let's learn from these lives. I, we do it because I think it's scriptural. As Mary just read the passage in Hebrews, you know, that cloud of witnesses, those saints that have gone before, it's all the people in chapter 11. So it goes through all those people that were faithful Through great trial and tribulation and he says they're witnesses to you They're not hanging over the wall of heaven looking at your life. They're witnesses to you in their Proclaiming to you the greatness of God and how they persevered because of his mercy We can learn from them, but it's not just scriptural. I I do think it's pastoral We see these people and we see their great gifts, but we see their brokenness and see us Lewis I mean, there were some great struggles in his life. I mean, some great weaknesses, some glaring flaws, and, and yet some great strengths. And we can think, well, if God can use that, then maybe he can use me. And then I think, last, is just worshipful. I do think that as you see the glory of God across time and space, across cultures and continents, it, you begin to see, wow, God is an expansive God here. And and you see the glory of God dimly in the lives of these people. And so when you look at their lives and you're inspired, you think, oh, God is good. And it leads you to worship. So so we'll be doing that today. And we've chosen C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis was his actual name. He did at the age of four tell his parents that he wanted to be called Jack. And uh, he was, in fact, Jack for the balance of his life to his friends. Now, you may be asking, why C.S. Lewis? I mean, C.S. Lewis, for some, you know, we have some questions about him. He Anglican, you know, maybe had some, you know, had, a, had an appreciation for the atonement, but spoke in very little detail over it. There's questions about his universalism or inclusivism. Uh, some people question whether he was an evangelical at all. So why him? Well, because he was brilliantly used of God, both as an apologist for the Christian faith, uh, but also as a teacher of many of the truths of Christianity. Uh, He links up the imagination and rational intellect and brings them together, as few have done before or after him. So I think there's much to be learned from him. I'll speak about the, the nature of his life, and then we'll draw some lessons from him. So, so sit back and try to enjoy this life. It's incredibly interesting. Um, we hear about his beginning from his own words. He speaks about his birth in his book, Surprised by Joy. He says, I was born in the winter of 1898 in Belfast, the son of a solicitor or attorney, and of a clergyman's daughter. Now, specifically, he was born on November 29, 1898, I- into the Protestant establishment of Northern Ireland. So right away, we are checked here because we think of C.S. Lewis as the quintessential Englishman, right? He's an Oxford Don, Englishman through and through. No, he was, in fact, Irish. And so this means uh, you know, that, that it kind of throws our perception of him off right off the right off the bat. Uh, but he was born into Northern Ireland, which was very divided between Catholicism and Protestantism. In fact, his brother Warney, or Warren, his only brother, his older brother, said that he had never spoken to a Catholic until he entered the Royal Military Institute at Sandhurst. So, so there was a great divide here. Now C.S. Lewis grew up in a very bookish young man. His only friend was his older brother. And even back then, at a young age, they invented their own country, boxing, and it had a 400-year history. So you see these imaginative skills all of a sudden developing very early. Warney, his brother, was sent away uh, to English boarding schools. That was kind of the way to go up the social ladder. You now, when he left home, uh, C.S. Lewis turned even more to becoming bookish and creating all kinds of dressed animals and knights in armor, all the characteristics you see in his later books, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. The major event, though, in his young life was the loss of his mother. She She had abdominal cancer, died when he was just nine. It devastated him. He wrote, with my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my life. There was... There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now the great continent had sunk like atlantis that 's how he valued his mother like a continent sinking like Atlantis. His father would then kind of remove himself. Warney was all the way at school, and two months later, they sent Lewis to a boarding school. Now, these boarding schools were horrible in Lewis's. He called them horrid. In fact, there was an American school scur- scur- girl who wrote to him and said, tell me about your young experiences. And so he spoke to her, he wrote to her, did correspondence all the way through his life, and he just said that they were terrible. Two of the three, he said this. He said, never hated anything as much, not even the front lines of the trenches of World War I. Now, to make this point, The teacher of the first school, Winyard School, in 1920 was declared certifiably insane. So you can just imagine being in a boarding school under the rule of a headmaster who was insane. So you can understand that. And he talks about his faith beginning to erode. He says this, he says the religious ideas Expressed in Virgil and other classical writers were being treated by both scholars and teachers as sheer illusions So he began to lose his faith at a very young age now after these boarding school debacles He ended up being sent to a tutor's house. His name is W.T. Kirkpatrick He was a friend of the family. They called him the great knock He had been a headmaster at a college in England and he was kind of like logic on a stick and, uh, and, and you'll understand why. Uh, he, would, he would use the Socratic method of teaching. That means using question after question to get at underlying beliefs and presuppositions. So here's what happened. He goes to the tutor's house in Surrey, rides the train up there. He gets off the train, meets the man. Now, what do you do? You make small conversations. So here's what he said. He made the remark that the scenery in Surrey was somewhat wilder. Wilder than he had anticipated again. It was just to break the ice So Kirkpatrick stops right there and looks at him and he says What did Lewis mean by wildness and what grounds had he for not expecting it? Had he studied maps of the area had he read books about it had he seen photographs of the landscape? Lewis quickly Conceded that he had done none of these things and his views were not based on anything just making conversation. So this kind of educational formation made him into that kind of systematic, clinical, logical, rational thinker. In fact, uh, many biographers of Lewis will say that he, in fact, was key, instrumental in forming what we've come to appreciate, rational, logical, clear thinking. Lewis would say about him, He said, my debt to him is very great. My reverence to this day is undiminished. But the rationalism of Kirkpatrick just only solidified the atheism in Lewis. Lewis writes to his friend, Arthur Groves, about his atheism. He says, I have no religious beliefs. All religions are simply mythologies invented by human beings, usually in response to natural events or emotional needs, which is the recognized scientific account of the growth of religions. He said, no intelligent person would want to believe in a boogeyman who is prepared to torture me forever and ever. The rational case of Christianity is totally bankrupt. So that's where he was at 17. Now, his brilliance earned him a scholarship to University College at Oxford. And so he went there in 16. But, of course, uh, quickly after he enrolled... He was drafted into the war. This is World War I, the Great War. He was a second lieutenant, and he fought on the fields of France in the trenches. It was a, he began his service in 1917, but in April of 18, a German counterattack on the position that he was in. They dropped a shell, and it killed the man right next to him, the soldier, and it wounded him. He had to be sent back to England. Ultimately, he was discharged in December of 18. Now, there's a question among the scholars on Lewis, why didn't he write more about it? He wrote nothing about his World War I experience. He wrote virtually nothing, and they, they wonder why. You now The general consensus is that the trauma of death in such a heinous way with, with gas warfare and the trench warfare was too much, and he just couldn't write about it. But here's what he writes. He says, this is how he dealt with it. He said, I put the war on one side to a degree, which some people will think shameful and some incredible. Others will call it a flight from reality. I maintain it was rather a treaty with reality, the fixing of a frontier. So what he's doing is he cannot understand the horribleness of this world, this, this atheistic worldview, and yet how can there be such devastation and ugliness? So he's making a treaty with reality. He's not going to go there, is what he's saying. There's an inner life, and there's an outer life. Well, this is important for you to understand, because it's that, it's that struggle to bring, to bring rest to a restless soul that's going to make him try to bring these worlds together. So that's the war is over. He reenters Oxford and begins to study. He was a distinguished student. He was called a, a triple first. So in Cambridge and Oxford, triple first means that you are first in your class in three different areas. This is highly unusual. He earned this award. But also at Oxford, he began developing a relationship with a woman named Mrs. Moore. Now, Mrs. Moore was the woman of a friend of his with whom he went to school back before the war, Patty Moore. Patty Moore died in the war, so her only son died. And so Lewis now is developing a relationship with this woman. He would ultimately end up sharing lodgings with her all the way until her death of 1951. Now, biographers describe this relationship as complicated. There's there's great debates about it. You know, mental health professionals just have a a field day with this one. But the reality of it is, I would simply suffice it to say that he was a man who lost a mother, alienated from a father, went through a war, and, and found in her perhaps as a mother. He referred to her as mother. He cared for her as his mother and her daughter so there's there's great debate about that but but that relationship will continue until' 51 until her death Now he would finish his degree at oxford and he would become a lecturer there he was teaching english language he would ultimately take a tutorship at Martin college and he would be there until 54 the bulk of his career was at oxford university you know oxford university has many universities under the banner of oxford and then he would switch to cambridge in 55 all the way till his death in 63. So that's kind of this education, his tutoring. What I want to remind you, or what I want to draw your minds to, is his friendships. Friendships were central to his life, both professionally developing him, but ultimately leading him to faith in Christ. Many of you know the group called the Inklings. The Inklings were this group of literary scholars that would get together at pubs, they would have pints of beer, they would read to each other their writings. So that's where Lewis and Tolkien and, and Williams and Barfield and all these other scholars at the time would gather together and share what they were doing, and they would support and encourage one another. But Barfield was unique as a friend because he was of super intellect, and he would challenge Lewis in a number of areas. First, he challenged him in this area of chronological snobbery. That's a term we associate with Lewis, which is chronological snobbery. In other words, If wisdom comes later in the line of human history, it's better than the prior knowledge gained. In other words, we know better because we're further down the the line of human history. And he challenged that. He said the wisdom of prior ages may in some ways be wiser and stronger than the current age. And that got Lewis thinking differently about the classical literature that he was reading. But secondly, he challenged his view of reality. What do I mean by that? Well, Lewis was a naturalist, and here's what he said. I want rock-bottom rationality, rock-bottom reality. He wanted his life to be thoroughly scientific. He thought it was the most economical and common-sense way to make life, as as a way of looking at life. He said this, I wanted nature to be quite independent of our observation, something other, indifferent, and self-existing. So that's the way he was trying to look at life. As a pure atheist. But Barfield would ask him, what about human moral judgments? What about feelings of joy? Why do we experience beauty? How did subjective ways of thinking fit into this? So what Barfield argued was that Lewis was actually inconsistent. He's inconsistent because he's relying on precisely the same inner patterns of thought that he had dismissed in order to secure his knowledge of an allegedly objective world. In other words, your mind is here. He says it this way in his theology poetry. If I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this is, to me, the final test. So you see what he's doing here? He's being confronted in the inconsistency in his rationalism. Another friend was J.R.R. Tolkien, and of course you know him as the author of Lord of the Rings. Lewis was called the midwife of that. Lewis working with Tolkien to try to get him, working back and forth, discussing the book. He was called the midwife of that book. But then Tolkien was called the midwife of Lewis coming to faith because he would play a central role in challenging Lewis's atheism. This is what he said about friendship. He said, friendship to me is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. So central were his friends to his spiritual development. Well, these friends are the ones that led him to be converted. And I'd like to explain a little bit about the conversion, because it's quite interesting. Remember now, he was clearly atheistic. He was dismissive of religion, in particular, of Christianity. But his conversion went from atheism to theism. So he didn't become a Christian right away. He converted from a belief in no God to a belief in God. And, and he will say that it's rational. In other words, he says these words, he says, it was essentially rational. It was unrelated to a long-standing fascination with joy. There's no kind of desire was present in me. The existence of God was something he wished not to be true. I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. So he converts to theism on rational grounds, not because he needs a big daddy in the sky or not because he needs help in life. He converted based on how do I explain this world? How can I engage with this world without a God who has created it? In other words, he's trying to break up this treaty with reality and try to figure out, it's like T. S. Eliot had a similar conversion to Christianity. He was saying he tried it to provide; he needed a lens with which to understand a distorted, a, a distorted world. Now, interestingly, Lewis's heart began to melt through literature that he was reading. So he was reading George MacDonald, G. K. Chesterton. They were challenging his naturalistic assumptions. He said this. I was confronted with the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life, atheism, it just happens, with my actual experience. They're not the same. How do I understand it? Herbert, Pascal, others convinced him of the rich and robust vision of the human life. They offered a way of seeing or picturing reality that was faithful to the way things are. He found the Christian outlook gave the most robust, the most, um, as he said, resilient and persuasive treaty with reality. In other words, the idea of the existence of God made the world have the most sense. And that's why he writes later, he says, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. He found the existence of God in these earlier writers. And he likens his his kind of change or diminishing resistance to God to the melting of snow. So in his in his biogra- or in autobiography, he says, I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back with a drip and a drip and then presently a trickle and a trickle. He said, I rather dislike the feeling, but it's that same imagery he uses in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about the snow melting when Aslan's prepared to be on the move. But listen to his words on the night of his conversion. He says, you must picture me alone in that room of Maudlin. That's the college that he was a tutor at. Night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had come upon me, in the Trinity term of 1929, the Trinity term would be from April to, through June, uh, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and I prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, who can duly adore that love, which will open the high gates to a prodigal, who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. He's overwhelmed with a God that would hunt him down even when he didn't want him. He would convert to Christianity in October of 1931, a full two years. He walked out a belief in God as a theist before he would become a Christian. And it was after a conversation with Tolkien and Dyson, another friend, where they pressed on him and he became a Christian. Here's what he says to a long-term friend, Arthur Greaves. He said, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ and Christianity. The great story really is true. God really sent a son. He really died for our sins. We really can have forgiveness and eternal life in the presence of one to whom all the joy was pointing. He said it in a little more humorous way to a friend. He said, I know very well when, but hardly know how the final step was taken. That is the final step into Christianity. He said, I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I didn't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. He didn't, he didn't try to, he didn't understand all the details. He just knew that he did. And here's what he said, and this gets back to the treaty with reality. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. So think about that. The sun helps us to understand all of life. And so he he believes the sun and now understands life. Well, uh, Lewis would go on, of course, to become a prolific author. He'd write, his first book was in 1919. He was 21. He began to write, and he wrote hundreds of books, articles, essays, lectures, sermons, thousands of pages of correspondence. He was prolific. But he couldn't type. His thumbs only had one joint. Not only that, but the typing he thought was disruptive to creative thought. So he told young writers, he says, don't use a typewriter. The noise will destroy your sense of rhythm, which still need years of training. So all that work with pen and paper and no secretary. Well, his later years were marked by some difficulties and struggles. Here, this once committed bachelor gets married in 1956, all the way towards the end of his life, and he marries an American woman, Joy David Gresham. She was the daughter of a Jewish couple from New York. She was a writer herself. Now, when you read about this marriage, it, it's problematic. I mean, it, it's puzzling, it's confusing. Uh, people are on all sides of the fence as to what motivated it. But she arranged through a number of contacts as a writer to meet C.S. Lewis. And so she went over to England and met him, tried to start a, a professional relationship with him. The next year, she went back over with her two sons. Well, the, it's very murky, but he ended up supporting the educational expenses of her children. He ended up supporting her. Now, he supported a lot of the educational costs of a lot of people, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but his friends were, thought she was a mercenary. He would end up marrying her in a civil marriage against the advice of the fr- In fact, he didn't tell them, but they were opposed to it once they heard. And, uh, and there's great debate about her motives, but listen to what he says at the end of his life. Now, they were only married for a number of years, uh, but something had to change in him because at first it was a, it was a civil ceremony so that she could stay in the country, uh, but then she would eventually move into his home with him And they would have a church ceremony. She was dying of cancer. She died in 60, in July of 60. But he said, it's a funny thing having at 59 the sort of happiness most men have in their 20s. Thou hast kept the good wine till now. So you see this, this love that he does have for her. Well, after her death, his health began to fail. It was determined that while an operation was necessary, uh, he didn't have the strength for it, and so his care was managed and not attempted to be cured. And he would kind of just uh, you know, increasingly become more and more sick. Uh, but one time he almost died, slipped into a coma and almost died. And he said something really faith-filled and humorous when he came out of the coma. He said, Though I am by no means unhappy, in other words, that he was revived, I can't help but feeling it was rather a pity that I did revive fully. I mean, having been glided painlessly up to the gate, it seems hard to have it shut in one's face and know that the whole process must someday be gone through again, and perhaps far less pleasantly. Poor Lazarus, but God knows best. Isn't that great? So on November 22, 1963, the same day that JFK died, so did C.S. Lewis. So, so what do we learn from his life? And Think about this with me. He told his secretary, his final secretary, he never had secretaries, he never had handlers, he never had advertisers, uh, was a University of Kentucky professor that went over there and helped organize many of his writings. And he told this man, C.S. Lewis did, he goes, I'll be forgotten in five years. That's what he said to him. Well, obviously he was wrong on that front because we're talking about him right now and many of us have still... Uh, profiting from his books. But let me draw some lessons from his life. First, I would say brilliance is not packaged perfectly. Brilliance is not packaged perfectly. He was meticulous with his words, but not so in life. He describes himself to a young admirer, 1954, a young woman admirer. He says, I'm tall, fat, bald, red-faced, double-chinned, black-haired, and have a deep voice, and wear glasses for reading. So he didn't come off really perfect in his presentation. Uh, They will say that his pants needed pressing, his jackets needed mending, his shirts needed cleaning, and his shoes always needed polishing. Students would come and often see food stains on his shirt. He never drove, he never read a paper, uh, he never wore a watch. He's really a mixed bag. You see brilliance, and yet he can't get out of the door dressed well. He doesn't even know what time it is. It, it, that's the way we are. I, I mean, all of us, we have these strengths that God has given to us, and we have this soft underbelly. We have these weaknesses. We have these, uh, we have these struggles in life. That's the way all of us are. And boy, if we could just kind of bake that into our mind of how we relate to one another, I think our marriages would improve. I think our, our relationships would improve. Just recognize that nobody has it all. Someone like as brilliant as this man was, and yet he can't dress himself to get out the door. Uh, Secondly, success did not go to his head. Now, money was always scarce in his years of academia, but as the books began to be produced and the royalties began to come in, his lifestyle didn't change. So he he, uh, established a charity fund, and all the royalties of the book went into this fund, and this fund would educate and pay for people's living expenses, educational expenses. He lived on a tutor's salary, most of his life. In fact, he was always concerned because although he dedicated all the money to a charitable fund, he was always worried that the British government was going to come and and put him in financial ruin to try to pay the taxes on the royalties that he had earned, but that he did not get to enjoy. But you see that success didn't go to his head because he was still writing personal letters to children in the United States, responding to letters that were written to him. He continued, even at the height of his popularity to talk at any church, to give any lecture, to give any sort of sermon. He would invite people into his home. His success did not go to his head. And I think it's because the way he looked at people. And this is from The Weight of Glory. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. But it's the immortals whom we work with joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. It's us, these eternal beings made in the image of God, and that's what gave him such humility even before them. Thirdly, Lewis shows us the glory of imagination. And One of Lewis's biographers in 1937 said that's when Lewis really came to understand that imagination, our ability to imagine, was the gatekeeper to the soul. Now, we know that he already, at a young age, had creative imagination. He read Jules Verne, he read H.G. Wells, he he enjoyed the time and space and travel. In fact, he says, uh, the idea of other planets exercised upon me then a peculiar, heady attraction, which was quite different from any other of my literary interests. In fact, the most important experience, when he read George MacDonald, Fantastes, he says that my imagination was baptized as it were. He would go on to write Narnia, Space Trilogy. Narnia has sold 100 million copies in 47 different languages. Y- you see how the imagination helped open up our eyes. So let me give you an example. In the uh, line The Witch from the Wardrobe, there's a scene where the characters are speaking to Mr. Beaver. So Mr. Beaver is a character in the book. And they're asking, they're just learning about Aslan, and they're worried about Aslan because he's a lion. And so they ask, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, I know some of you are probably wondering how I can be quoting a beaver up here, but Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So the imagination, he just taught two principles of the character of Jesus Christ. Aslan being a picture of Christ, there is authority and power and glory. He's not safe. We don't trifle with him, but he's good. He's kind. He's compassionate. So here he's describing in this word picture the glory of the character of Christ. Let me give you another example. Rachel reminded me of this from the last battle. Listen to how he describes moving from this life to the next life. He says, and as he, Aslan, as he spoke... He no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I can't write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover And the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Incredible way of describing how we move from this life to the next life and how it gets better and better. This life right here, the life you're living, it's the title page. It isn't the story. It's just the title page. Incredible way of of getting us to imagine the glory of what's to be. And then I would say just a couple more. Success comes with a loss. His fame grew on a national stage. He had the BBC broadcast in 41 and 44. He became the voice of uh, of England. He was uh, put on the picture of Time magazine in 1947 as the most popular lecturer in Oxford. And in all that fame, he met all kinds of criticism. He got passed over three times for senior appointments. He was criticized by his colleagues for not being scholarly enough. He was criticized for, for succumbing to popular culture. He was criticized for being a Christian. He was criticized for being evangelistic. He faced incredible amounts of criticism at the height of his fame. So we've got to remember that success always comes with, with costs. And then just two more. One would be learning from those different. I mean, what do we do with Lewis, right? He's an Anglican. Some think he's an Anglo-Catholic. He believed in purgatory. He was a smoker. He was a drinker. And he married a twice-divorced woman. He was not reformed. He was heavily influenced by Catholic writers. And yet he's used of God. I mean, can we learn from people that are different than us? I mean, can we grasp truth that comes to us through other mouthpieces? If we only listen to those who think and act like us in every way, you've got to get in front of a mirror because your own spouse, if you're married, doesn't think and act like you. And so there's value in learning from those who are different, such as Lewis. Daniel reminded me of the old quote, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones. You know, the, the things that aren't right and appropriate, then you spit them out. But there's much to be gained from people who may think differently than us. I like think we see it in popular culture. Everybody gets in their own echo chamber, and we hear what we want to hear, and we just are solidified in our view of, of what we keep hearing. And there's value to step outside of that. And the last thing I would say is this, the value of longings. Each one of, he, each one of you in here I know has longings. You have desires, you have hopes, and you have dreams. He made much of these longings. In fact, it was critical. So for Lewis, to long for something was the same as joy. And so he says, in a sense, joy is the central story of my life. It's about nothing else. In other words, all of us have longings for something that we desire. We want joy, but we can't seem to grasp it and hold on to it. So you get something, you you are joyful, and then it it kind of evaporates. Here's what he said in a talk in Oxford, 1941, entitled, Till We Have Faces. He's arguing for the reality of God, saying that we all long for something, only to find our hopes frustrated when we actually achieve it. He says says it in these words. There was something we grasp at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. What he's saying is you grasp at it, you long for it, you want it, but when you finally get it, it kind of fades away. It never provides what you think it should. Your joy is not satisfied. And he argued that instead of thinking that we're looking in the wrong place, he's saying this. He says, these er, these longings are a kind of copy or echo or mirage or true homeland. In other words, his point is, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So these desires, now we talked about this last week with Envy. The things of this world, the gifts of God, they cannot satisfy you. They're meant to arouse in you a greater longing for that which does satisfy. The good things, we want to be thankful for them, but they can't satisfy you. It can only be found in God. It can only be found in understanding you are created. You are created by a, by a good and a sovereign, powerful God. Listen to what he writes in The Weight of Glory. Well, listen to these words. Incredible. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. In other words, if you see something and it creates a longing and you think your joy is going to be in that, you're going to be heartbroken. He says, He says, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, or it's the echo of a tune we have not heard, or it's news from a country we have never yet visited. Those longings that you have are meant to be pulling you to something greater, something more glorious. That's what Lewis is great about, encouraging us to only be satisfied in a joy that can come from God. And and, and it it, it clears us, it clears the cobwebs from our mind over what is important in this life. And it turns out to be that we want joy, and the joy that we want is only found in God. So may I encourage you to read him. If you want these notes, you can have them. Uh, but, but, but don't be satisfied with temporal things. You're immortal. You're going to live forever. You can't be satisfied by those things. So let's just take a moment and ask God to take the truth of his life, whatever part may have struck you, and, and that you might apply it, and that the Spirit of God might apply it, apply it to your soul, and, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.